Well, I invite you to actually keep uh, you know, a piece of paper or your finger or something in the Ephesians passage and open to Psalm 139, if you could. <clears throat> we'll get back to the Ephesians passage after Psalm 139. Uh, this week, uh, we are actually taking a little excursus. So normally, we work through books of the Bible, and we just go start to finish. Uh, as you may know, we had somebody lined up from the Pillar Network to uh, be here with us today, but since pulling that proposal, we had an extra Sunday uh, open, and we had already had kind of the rest of the series planned out, and we liked how it was set up, so we had an extra week, and uh, we're, we're going to work on a doctrine today uh, called the Providence of God, which we saw in the Samson encounter, especially the last two uh, sermons uh, from chapters 14, 15, and 16, where that theme really picked up steam. Uh, and so I thought well, we'd just spend one extra week just meditating on what, what actually is the definition of uh, the providence of God, what are we talking about, and then reflect on why is this such a fabulous soul-strengthening doctrine that the church has loved and been strengthened by and comforted by uh, and emboldened by throughout the years. So we're just going to spend some time on that uh, today, Psalm 139, and then like we've got that pulpit swap, and then we'll finish up. Uh, two more sermons in Judges, then we're going to hit the book of Ruth, which happens during the time of Judges, and then into the book of Colossians. Uh, but Psalm 139, uh, I'll read it. Uh, I encourage you, uh, try to think about this question as we read it. Uh, what uh, verses uh, or sections of this psalm might someone be very tempted to either just gloss over at best or ignore at worst? Okay, what passages or what portions of this psalm might people be tempted to gloss over or totally ignore. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David, a very beloved psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too, it's too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I said, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day because darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me 
are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, what, uh, what verses did you see in there that you think maybe we might be tempted to gloss over or ignore? I'm guessing everybody would probably agree. It's verses 19 to 22. I mean, this is a beloved song, uh, psalm or song uh, because David here meditating on the fact that God knows everything about him. He goes before him. He goes behind him. If he, if he tries to hide in the sea, God will find him there. There's nowhere David can go that, da- that God doesn't know where David is and da- that God's not caring for him. And then he says, even you, get, you have a book that wrote, wrote down every single day that's going to happen. Right? That's why we love this psalm. This gives us great comfort. The problem is when we don't actually let 19 to 22 come into play, we miss the glory of act, at the actual passage. David here is somehow being hunted, most likely, which you read about throughout uh, you know, the first, second Samuel. David is often on the run, whether it's from King Saul, the, the most powerful person in the, in the nation, or his son Absalom, or he's off in some other country. He's often on the run, and it's the fact that God is sovereign and uh, his, God's providence that actually gives him comfort. How is David going to survive in sleep, like Psalm 3 says, that he's got thousands of people chasing him, and he just, he just goes to bed. I slept. The last thing I would do when I'm hunted is sleep. How, how can David do that when he's hunted, except for the fact that he leans heavily on the sovereignty of God, the providence of God? Because he says, look, no matter what my enemies try, if that's not written in that book, they can't do it. They can't pick up one stone, or as Jesus says, one single bird cannot fall to the ground unless your Father in heaven grants that. And then he says, even the hairs on your head, they're all numbered, every single one. And they estimate anywhere from 80,000 to 150,000 hairs you have on your head. Depending on what color of hair you have, like the blondes have more hair, a redhead, Kirk, has the least, I guess. And some of us have... <laughs> Even less. <laughs> but it's, it's everything. Where do you go when you're stressed out? Do you run to the providence of God? Throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the church, this is where the church runs because this doctrine is meant to give us ballast in our soul so we can encounter the waves and remain standing. So let's, let's go to Ephesians, uh, if you can turn back there, uh, and let's just try to clarify. What, what is providence? Here, I'll give you a definition, uh, and we'll work through it, and then we'll reflect on it. 
So I, here's how I would define God's providence, uh, at least right now. Uh, I would say it this way. It's, providence is God's invisible hand working all things together to accomplish God's will. Namely, for uh, the, the will of God's glory being seen and savored, seen and cherished. Or you might say God, God works all things together for his glory and for the good of his people. All right, so it's God's invisible hand working all things together to accomplish God's sovereign will for God's glory and for the good of his people. Or if you want a really simple definition, John Piper says it this way. It is God's purposeful sovereignty. Just two words there. Purposeful sovereignty. Let, let me um, at least drill down here and kind of nuance this a little bit. Um, how do we distinguish the providence of God from, say, the sovereignty of God? That's, these are words that we toss out there. The sovereignty of God is what we would, would say is God's absolute authority over all things. Right? He, he, he reigns over all things, and what God declares shall be, shall be. That's, that's God's sovereignty. He has a sovereign will that he declares shall happen. This is God's ability to have authority. When you think of sovereignty, you think of absolute authority. Right? That's how we talk about it even as a king or something. He is, he's the sovereign king. Right? He has absolute authority. And because God is omniscient, which means God is all-knowing, uh, and God is all-wise, and God is good, and God is just, and God is merciful, and God, God is full of grace, we know then that God's sovereign will or God's sovereignty is good. Right? God declares what shall be, and therefore because God is all-wise, he knows what all, all there is, and he is good, uh, he is wise, he is all-knowing, we know that his sovereign plan must be good. And then we have the idea of God's omnipotence, God's all power. And I'm, I know I'm tossing out these th terms here. So I'm trying to nuance what providence is. Um, God's omnipotence, meaning God's all, like he's all powerful, meaning he has the authority to carry out his plan. So God's sovereignty, his authority to say what shall be, because God is wise and uh, good, we know that that plan is good, and God's power, he has the power to actually carry out the plan. Providence, then, is the actual execution of the plan. Okay, it's, it's God's actual, uh, as, as in, some in history have called it, God's invisible hand. So we, we see history unfolding, but underneath it all is God's invisible hand carrying it along. It, it's his active participation in bringing history to its end, God's sovereign will, for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. So historically, when people have talked about providence, there's usually three categories that they talk about. The first would be uh, the fact that God sustains all things. Meaning that, uh, take the Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus uh, upholds all things by the word of his power. Meaning all creation right now is still existing because God is sustaining it. This is God's act of providence in simply sustaining the world. And part of that is sustaining all of natural order to remain as it, as it was decreed to be. Right? So water will be water, because not because it just naturally does it, but because... Jesus' word holds it like that. 
See, we live in an age where we've almost, uh, one author says, we've, we've almost outgrown providence. Because we've, we've figured so many things out. We're so smart that we think, well, we don't need God behind those things anymore. And that would be a very dangerous thing. So the first category is he sustains all things. The second thing, uh, historically, they talk about providence is God's governing. So he not only holds the universe, but he, he governs it like a, uh, like a great king and demands what shall be. Or you read in, in 1 Timothy, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. So he's directing everything, whether it be the rain or the sun or the tsunami. Right? Jesus governs all things. And then the third category is what's known as concurrence. Or you could use the word like co-operating. It's the idea uh, that God um, cooperates, you, you could say it that way, um, but it might sound a little bit funny that way. It weakens it. Uh, with the human will to actually accomplish his plan. Meaning, um, concurrence means when you have multiple parties. It could be two, it could be three. All involved in an act that has an outcome. But those parties have different intentions. So we saw this in, in the Samson encounter, right? Samson sees the Timnite woman. Get her for me as my wife, remember? And remember 14.4, it says, God meant this because he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. In Samson, he had an intention in having the woman. It was all lust. God had a, a, an intention that wasn't about that. It was about destroying the Philistines, right? Bringing judgment. So that's concurrence. It, it, it's, it's God underneath the whole story, not imposing... Uh, or like violating, uh, the creeds will say, not violating the will of man. But actually, um, it's actually like Samson is desiring that very thing. It's within the will of man that God is moving that along. Uh, or we saw it in uh, Joseph's brothers. They meant it for evil. And what does the text say? God meant it for good. Right? Two different intentions, same action. Or we can read about it in Luke chapter 22. That's uh, the night of the betrayal. Remember, it says uh, Satan entered into Judas. Right? Satan has an intention, uh, an intention, a goal with the betrayal of the son to try to crush the plan. Right? Satan knows that he's supposed to be crushed by the seed of the woman. He knows that Jesus here is Messiah. He's, he's trying to end that plan. He thinks the crucifixion is going to be victory for him. Judas also has an intention. Money. Right? He gets 30 pieces of silver. He just filled his pocketbooks. That's great for him. That's his goal in it. Even later, he seems to even try to get Jesus off. It's not necessarily like that wasn't necessarily his goal, like exactly what they were going to do, but he wanted the money. So we're told earlier that he was stealing money from the money bag all along. And of course, Jesus tells us in the same chapter that God had his own intentions. Right? It was all planned from the beginning to bring about redemption. That's concurrence, that God uses secondary causes, which would be people, a cause that has a cause, to bring about his plan. Now, let me draw your attention to Ephesians 1.11. Uh, obviously, this whole passage is helpful in this category, but 1.11 can be, uh, 1.11 and 12 can really serve to capture a couple things here. Uh, there we read, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, in this passage, Paul is exulting, the E-X-U-L, praising, right, blessing God uh, for God's uh, redemption of his people, right? He starts from before the foundation of the world, we were predestined to be adopted into the family of God, to receive forgiveness, that we would have an inheritance and have the Holy Spirit. He's, he's labeling, you know, kind of unpacking all these things, just blessing the Lord for the redemption that we have. Now, what we see in verse 11, uh, as well as uh, two other times in the passage, verse 5 and verse 9, notice that word there, having been predestined according to the purpose so there's a, a purpose of where all this is heading, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will or of his plan. What's important to see here is that sometimes people hear about the providence of God, that God causes all things to work together for his glory and for our good, um, that it's, it's the same thing as like fate or chance. And uh, throughout the history of the church, people have spoken very strongly against that because fate is impersonal, and chance is just blind happenings. There's no, there's no purpose in this. But the providence of God declares very strongly that God is very purposeful in where he's taking all of this, and then he defines it for us in verse 12, so that we were who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, the third time he talks about that, verse 6, verse 14. The purpose, then, is to work everything together to God's praise, to praise God's glory, the full manifestations of all God's attributes that are good and perfect. And in so doing, we find our deepest joy. So let's go one more place, and then we'll kind of move on from the definition here. Uh, let's go to Romans 8. Uh, this will be a, a popular verse as well, just so we can see how God works all things together. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So notice here again, we have that same phrase, verse 28, that God works all things together. And for what? For good, for God's people. Now, what's good to see in this is that uh, God's providence is universal in scope, right? The whole universe. God is provident, uh, providential over everything, but it has a particular benevolent eye to the saints, right? God's providence is not good news for everybody, 
Well, I mean, what about Psalm 139? Was God's providence good news for David's enemies? No, it's terrible news. God's judgment's coming after them. And God's working all things together to bring that judgment upon them. God's providence is good news for the saints, those who have been blood-bought, who have come underneath the wing of God, who have come into the covenant, who have repented of their sins and put their trust in, in Christ. That is who God's providence is good news for. And God is working all things together for their good. In particular, what does the text declare to be good? Well, verse 29, that they would be conformed into the image of Jesus. In other words, God's holiness to become more like Jesus. Which, again, just to hear a quick note, uh, sometimes people hear the providence of God as if, well, then we don't really have to fight against sin. The text actually declares the exact opposite. The providence of God should give us confidence that God is going to shape us into the image of Jesus. So there we have the providence of God. God's invisible hand works all things together to accomplish God's sovereign will for his glory and for the good of his people. Which means everything you've ever encountered in your entire life has been pursuing this plan. Whether it was good whether it was evil, whether it was happy or sad, every conversation you've had, every flat tire, every time you missed your alarm, all of that somehow weaving together for God's glory and for our good. Now that can be major things, right? Hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, destruction, pandemics, everything, and right down to the smallest, minute little details, right? the child crying in the other room at 3 a.m. That is God weaving everything together for you, for his glory, and your good. Or even something simple like Kirk gets off a ride yesterday at Bay Beach and a bird pooped on his face. <laughs> that is for God's glory and for Kirk's ultimate good. <laughs> Actually, I, would, I did have, uh, I, was, I was in the middle of uh, sharing the gospel with somebody once in Chicago, and uh, a bird pooped on my shoulder, and the guy was like, whoa, where I'm from, that's really good luck. And it actually helped in, uh, in sharing the gospel. So, the bird's poop can be good. But this, this, this is glorious news. Now, it's not always clear. We don't always see it. This is God's invisible hand. Uh, I, lo I love how Corey Ten Boom, her illustration, if you were here for the Reformation Sunday, we went through that. She used this illustration of, I don't have hers, but embroidery. You know, this is one of our, our daughters brought this home that she did this at school. You might, even from the back, you might be able to see, make up a little bit what's, what's on there, right? Sometimes when we look at, over the course of our life, we can kind of see the lines of providence. Oh, yes, that's how I see. God is working this together for good. But there are some things on the front side of this that there's no way you would know are there from the back of this. This just feels like, it looks like all gobbledygook, strings hanging all over the place. But you turn it around and it's got a beautiful picture. Right? The, the providence of God says that, it doesn't say that we're going to have everything clear for us in the moment. 
But one day, if we, could, if we could stand there at the end, when we make it to the eternal shore, look back and say, yep, you were wise in that, God. Every moment, every pain, every tear, every high point, everything happening on the other side of the world that I, you know, I didn't, wasn't personally impacted by, you were righteous and good and faithful. It all came together for your glory and for the good of your people. So that is the providence of God. Let's, let's just spend some time reflecting on why this is such great, great news. The church has loved this doctrine. And many, 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 many pages have been written uh, on this topic. Uh, this is worth, if you're looking for a topic to just meditate on through the summer, this would be a great one. There's some excellent resources out there. I'd love to get them in your hands. Uh, we could talk about them, grab coffee and talk about it if you'd like. But I had a list of 20 things that I just quickly came up with on why is the doctrine so good? What is some good fruit that happens in the life of the saints if we embrace this doctrine and let it really seep down into our soul? We'll we'll do five. (laughs) The first one, um, I find that this doctrine can give great freedom from anxiety when when we have like a decision that we're trying to make. Okay. I'm talking about a decision where you have several different options, two, three, four options. None of them in themselves are sinful. Okay. Now, I do think as we're trying to make decisions like that, it's helpful to talk with people that know us best, who walk with the Lord, get the, the counsel from other people that we trust. That would be really helpful to do, and I trust God's grace through the, the, the people of God to, to guide us. So I definitely trust that. But at the end of the day, you still might be left and say, I don't, I don't know which way should I go. I think the providence of, providence of God is extremely helpful from the, that anxiousness that you feel. Am I, am I, are we going to make the wrong decision and then screw everything up? The answer to that would be absolutely not. You can't. God's hands aren't all, if you, if you go left, God's hands aren't going to be like, oh, man, my hands are tied now. I really wanted to do this, but you made that decision. Now I can't do it. That, that's not how this works. I love how the Apostle Paul, if you've ever come to me for advice in a decision, you've probably heard this. Uh, I always go to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2. There you, you read the Apostle Paul. He talks about um, how he, he went to the city Troas. And when he got to Troas, he realized there was, there was this great opening. He says it was an open door for the gospel. I mean, this is fantastic. He shows up in the city, open door for the gospel. And then he says, but my spirit wasn't right within me because I wanted to see my friend Titus. And so I left and went to Macedonia. And you read that, you go, oh, was Paul sinning? Against, there was an open door for ministry. Clearly that's where God wants you. But he says, but I didn't feel right. I wanted to go see Titus. That's not sinful. Even though he's, he's walking away from this open door for the ministry because he wants to go see his friend. And then he wraps up the discussion. And he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ into uh, triumphal procession. In other words, I know that both ways I can go are not sinful, and I know that either way I go, God wins the victory in Christ, and he will get me exactly where he wants me to go. Uh, so I think this, this doctrine, uh, it can be incredibly helpful. If you have a decision that you're trying to figure out, providence of God is golden for you. Uh, second, uh, I think this brings great healing from an endurance through confusing and painful situations, whether that be uh, somebody sinning against you actively now 
or in the past, or whether it's past regret for something you've done, or whether it's just simply an accident happens or just some, uh, you know, active nature or whatever. Obviously, it's the providence of God, right? Um, this can be incredibly helpful. Now, it can be confusing at times to try to figure that out. Uh, here's what I want, might suggest to you. Look, you know, spend some time, look back on your life, and look at things that were hard, that you, can, that you actually can see. Say, you know what, I can see how God, in his providence, worked that for good. Uh, I'm not going to call, if it was something evil, I'm not going to call that evil good, but God worked it for good. And you can do this with other people. What you're trying to do is fill your heart with the idea that, that you, you know you can trust this. Look in the scriptures and see it over and over again. For me personally, uh, some of you know, I, my dad left uh, our family when I was a young boy. And uh, there was a lot of um, unhealthy things going on there uh, with adultery and such. And uh, my mom ended up ha having to work a lot of hours after that. And uh, my upbringing then just was very swirly. And a lot, I got into a lot of things that I'm not proud of. I have a lot of regret in that sense of some of the things I did. When I grew up, I had extreme hatred in my heart towards my dad. Because he, he never really came around except for baseball season. And I can stand here today, you know, I came to faith when I was 23. I look back and I'm incredibly thankful to God for my upbringing. I don't call it good, like I'm, I'm not saying that was, that was good. I'm not like wishing things upon people or like someone. But I can honestly look back and say, God is, God, I'm a different person today because of that. Now I have other baggage I deal with, but I can praise God. I can thank God for that. Now I have other situations that I'm still trying to figure out. Right? These, they got some untied things that I can't figure out. Like, why, Lord, why? I still don't see a purpose for that. But it's, it's being able to look back at major things and say, I see it there. I see it there. I don't see it here, but God, I trust you because you've shown yourself faithful. That's a good way to take that practice uh, or do it in uh, other people's lives. Uh, but healing and enduring uh, confusing and painful situations, this, this doctrine's golden for that. Number three, uh, I think this doctrine allows the Christian to grieve with contentment. To grieve with contentment and hope. So here's the thing. Everybody in the world faces struggle and pain. Right? There's basically two normal ways that people approach it. We grumble or retaliate against it on one side. Or another side is to try to ignore it. And like, oh, well, we'll, we'll just move past it, not think about it. Hopefully it'll just go away. The providence of God actually allows the Christian to stare that in the face with grief and hope. Right? That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians talks about, we grieve not as the world grieves who has no hope. When he's talking about uh, death and such. Yeah, we don't, we don't call death good. We grieve. We don't have to hide that. There's a lot of pain and sad things in the world that we encounter, that we watch other people encounter. We can grieve that. Jesus wept at the, gar uh, at, at the death of Lazarus. That's, Jesus is the most content person in the world, right? Ever. Jesus uh, wept in the garden uh, the night before his crucifixion. Matthew puts it that he, Jesus says that he is sorrowful unto death so that he falls on his face. He's full of grief and yet full of contentment. Where the author of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
Right, so this doctrine actually allows us to experience grief, face it, not run from it, and yet have contentment and hope. Always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as Paul puts it in Corinthians. Uh, fourth, I think this doctrine gives us power to fight against sin. And I'm just talking about like everyday, everyday responses here. So the sin of discontent that you have, uh, envy, impatience, grumbling. I, I'm, I'm kind of a master at the cold shoulder uh, response. You know, I can give a cold shoulder to my wife. Uh, she, I don't like the way she's treating me. Um, I have a lot more stories of how I don't allow the providence of God to help me, and I end up going cold shoulder. But I actually, having meditated on the providence of God, I had one victory this past week, which is kind of cool. So it was uh, last week we were getting ready to go to uh, her brother's house, and Danica is very organized and, like, gets, uh, uh, let's see, when we're getting ready to go, she's energetic and ready. She wants everybody to make sure we're getting out of the door on time. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, it's a little bit stressful morning. We're trying to get everything together. And uh, I was helping out. You know, I, I, I did a ton of dishes. Our dishwasher was broken. So I, I washed them by hand, you guys. I mean, <laughs> thank you. That's what I was waiting for was the clap from her. She didn't give it to me. Instead, she came downstairs, and she had other tasks that I need now to go do, which is fine, but at least acknowledge what I just did. I cleaned up the kitchen for us. But there was none of that. There was all of this other things that we got to get done. What else is, like, what, what are you guys not doing? I need you to go down there. And she needs me to go get the cooler. So I go down and get the cooler. And what am I doing? Right away, I'm like, cold shoulder on the way. It's coming. Because <laughs> I'm frustrated, right? Like, pay attention to what I'm doing. Uh, but thankfully, God reminded me of his providence. He's given me a particular wife to chisel off certain things in my own heart. I, I need that to, to help me be shaped more into the image of Jesus. God didn't make some mistake putting us together that we're different in that, right? God, God is good. God is wise. God is faithful. He's placed me in a family so that Romans 8, 28 and 29 would be happening, right? That I would be being shaped into the image of Jesus, that God would work all those things for my good. And thankfully, I, I, I mean, at least I remember it. I came up and just did what I was supposed to do, you know, and I... I had no cold shoulder. But this doctrine really gives us power to fight sin. Now, if you're on the mailing list of Crossway, uh, at 1120 or 1125, you'll get an email with a list of reflection questions. One of them on, it, on there is along the lines of, what are you going to be tempted by this week? What do you know you're going to be tempted by? And think through, how does the providence of God actually give you power to sever that at its root? And last, this doctrine gives us great boldness in the mission of God. Great boldness in the mission of God. Have you ever shrunk back to risk for the cause of the kingdom? I sure have. Maybe that's in sharing the gospel with someone. Maybe it's moving to a certain part of the city or getting involved in a ministry because you're a little bit nervous of maybe there's a little bit danger there, or moving to another part of the world. Have you ever felt the burden? Maybe God wants me to go do something else, but it's safe and comfortable in what I have. 
This doctrine can give us, can give us great boldness. We're, we're going to, in a minute here, we'll read a, a portion from what's called the Belgic Confession. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of background. It, the, the original author of the confession, his name was uh, Guido de Bries. He was a pastor. Uh, he was actually trained underneath uh, uh, Calvin for a short season, but then moved back to his homeland, and he was living in Belgium. And they were experiencing incredible persecution uh, to the point where he, uh, the, the, the Reformed Church actually accepted uh, this as an of- official creed in the Reformed Church that they still use today. Um, in 1561, and in 1567, he was hanged for the gospel. So he, he died. He was in prison and then was put to death for the gospel. Uh, there's this letter you can read that he writes from prison to his wife uh, that is just beautiful. They had been married for seven years, have five young kids, and he's about to go to, to, the, uh, to the rope. And what he keeps pointing back to is God's good providence. This isn't a mistake. If God wanted to intercede and bring me home, he would. But this is God's good pleasure. And we can trust him in this. We will be separated, but God is good. The reason why I give that background is because we're going to read this confession. And we ought not think about these confessions as like people just writing them in ivory towers and safe and comfortable. These are written in the trenches. And this is what gave them boldness in the face of of such uh, situations. So let's go ahead and read that. This is the Belgic Confession. This is Article 13, just focusing on the providence of God. So it says, We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but he leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of and cannot be charged with the sin that occurs. For God's power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that God arranges and does his works very well and justly, even when the devils and the wicked act unjustly. So that's just theologically the the reality. And then he goes into this portion where he says, we're not going to try to go above that. So he says, we do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what God does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But instead, in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us. We are content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what God shows us in in the word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort. Remember, the church is, their, their, their blood is being spilt here. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father, who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordships. Lordship, so that not one of the hairs of our heads, for they're all numbered, nor even one little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without divine permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God does not get involved in anything and leaves everything 
to chance. Now, I love that because, again, this is in the face of persecution. They said we're not going to back down because we know that they can't do anything unless God allows it. Or like David, every single one of my days is written right in that book, therefore I'll go to sleep. No matter who's chasing me, I'll just go down and I'll sleep, I'll rest. Or in Acts, as, uh, as the, the church gathers after Peter and John have been arrested, they're released, and they, they proclaim to God, we know that uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, did exactly what your hand ordained. And then they ask God, God, grant us now to speak your word with boldness. We know we're going to go out there. We know we're going to get arrested. We know some of us are going to get killed. But nothing can happen without your hand. If God is for us, who can be against us? And with that, we'll move to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's, as we gather, or as, as we come forward for the elements, we're going to sing from Psalm 23. It's a very popular psalm. Uh, so let's, we can do this as our heart's response with David. Uh, in the psalm, David's meditating on the fact that he has a good shepherd. God is a good shepherd. He leads him uh, into nice pastures. He leads him into dark valleys. And even right before God, his, his very enemies, God is with him, he's guiding him, and his mercy will hunt him down. If you're here and a follower of Christ, the table is open to you, provided you are walking in repentant faith. If you're here and not a follower of Jesus, or not walking in repentant faith, we ask you not to partake of the elements. But uh, for those of you walking uh, in Jesus, please come forward and then return to your seats. Let us partake this morning as an act of faith. We don't always understand uh, everything that's happening. We can't always make clear declarations about that. But we know where it's headed. And we know the character of our God. And we've been brought near to him, we trust, not because of what we've done, but because of the broken body of Jesus. And that's where we stand. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this, bread, this uh, body, this is my body, which is broken for you. Brothers and sisters, one day we will get to that eternal city whose architect and builder is God, and then we will see in full, and we will worship him forever. We don't have the strength to do that, but the Lord Jesus has promised that he will get us there because he's brought us into the covenant. This is the cup of the covenant, for the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.